It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's great to be with you uh, this morning on Resurrection Sunday. So I was thinking about uh, just the theme of resurrection and riffing on this text. I was thinking about a season of life about 10 years ago uh, where I was deep in what you could call the um, get your stuff together phase of life. That, that's that phase of life that happens most of the time in your 20s where you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, what training or degrees or experience you need in order to do it, uh, if you were going to get married, who you're going to marry, if anyone would actually marry you, uh, what you might need to do to make yourself marryable. In my case, there was a lot. Um, I was deep in that. And there was this moment where I could see it start to come together. But if I was honest, <clears throat> I felt like I was building a house of cards. And I was just hustling to kind of make it fit together and happen. Uh, I had been working towards becoming a pastor for a few years through internships and doing the like barista worship leader hustle. And I just moved uh, to a new city uh, because I was engaged to this breathtakingly beautiful woman that I somehow convinced to marry me. And uh, I was going to go to seminary in that city as well that I'd somehow managed to pay for. And I'd kind of talked myself into a job at a church that was somewhat, you know, somewhat famous for like raising up church planners and sending out pastors and stuff. And I had this grand vision that if you talked to me for more than like a minute or two, I was going to plan a super trendy, cool church in a big, cool city after I finished seminary. Uh, but I was hustling, like not in the good sense of the term hustling, just pushing and pulling and just trying to make it all fit together and keep the plates spinning. And I remember one of the first staff meetings I went to at this, this new church, uh, I, I showed up out of breath and sweaty because I had biked like seven or eight miles to get there because I had sold my car to buy Camilla Ring and pay for a honeymoon. Like I said, I was like hustling, just like making it work, <laughs> utilizing all assets to pull this together. And uh, I sit down at the table full of all the youthful ambition and a bravado that you know comes from feeling like you're a huge fraud. And I hear, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> And I heard the pastor of the church, the guy I was going to start working with, just before the meeting started, just like in the small talk before the meeting, he was just talking casually about these two older pastors that uh, had, were mentoring him. And he said this line that I will probably remember for the rest of my life. They are two old guys who have thought long and hard about what it means to be truly human. And in that moment, I thought, that's it. That's what I want to be. I want to be truly human, and I think that might be my calling to help other people become more and more truly human. And also in that moment, it was like a, a wake-up call, because I felt so deeply that I was so far from being truly human. Uh, the, the pushing and pulling and striving and straining, all like under the guise of church and the kingdom and all that stuff. 
Uh, and mercifully, the culture of this church that I had kind of talked myself into was big about helping scruffy, ambitious guys in their 20s uh, grow a little bit of depth in their soul and come home to Jesus. And so a journey began, a journey that I am very much still on. But being truly human, who God created us to be is both how we thrive as as creatures, as beings, and also how God gets glory. Like, God is not frustrated or disappointed that you're a human. Being, being a human is the pinnacle of God's creation. He created you to be human, and he gets glory when we live into what he's created us to be. Now, of course, just by being alive, if you're here today and you're alive, you are, you know, in some sense, truly human. Like you're, I'm not saying you're, you're less than human, but uh, on a maybe metaphorical level, I think we can all agree that there are ways of being human, ways of living that are less than fully or truly human. Like if the self-help section of, you know, Barnes and Noble uh, and bookstores, I mean, you know, I don't know, rest in peace books, maybe the self-help channels on YouTube uh, or podcasts or any indication, I think a lot of us, there's a big market for people who have, uh, making money off people who feel like they haven't found a satisfactory way of being a human in the world. And I go into all this on Resurrection Sunday because this vision of being truly human, I think, is one way to understand what the resurrection is all about. Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead, rose to new life as a new creation? Why is the resurrection good news? I mean, if we just needed Jesus to die for our sins so we can get to heaven, did he even need to rise from the dead? The resurrection is good news because it means you and I can become new creations. That's the main idea for us this morning. Truly and fully human, new creations made into the image of the resurrected King and Savior. Look at verse 15. It says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What really counts, what matters, is becoming new. The New Living Translation does this verse like this. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. If you're visiting with us, I feel like I just need to like apologize that we're going to be talking about circumcision a lot. We're going to say that word a lot on Easter Sunday, so cheers. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. We'll unpack it. Uh, this in the Bible. Uh, but the resurrection is good news because it shows that, yes, Jesus died for our sins and we are forgiven. And that forgiveness is good news because it means the old ways of being human are gone, paid for, crucified with Christ. And you and I, if we are in Jesus, we are brand New, a whole new creation. You can think of it like, like Pinocchio. We become real boys and girls on this side of the cross because of the resurrection. Instead of being puppets jerked around by all the competing promises of the world, be safe, be important, be approved by others, we become real people of substance rooted and grounded uh, so that the vortex of the world's messages fade away and we can live into life with God, new life with God, the life that Jesus was willing to die so that you and I can experience. So the question for us, for those of us who believe Jesus is the king, our savior, is to what degree are we living into this new creation that is true of us in Christ is what God has done. To what degree are we living into becoming truly human, experiencing more and more that new creation life that the Bible says we already have because of what God has done. 
And for those of us who aren't sure where we stand with Jesus, maybe you're here because, you know, your family promised you ham afterwards or whatever, and you just wanted to come, and it's Easter or whatever, uh, I'm so glad that you're here. And the the question for for you guys is, do you feel like your current way of humaning, of being human, is, is working? Is it making you more and more fully and truly human? Is there any level of your soul where you feel an ache to be made into something new? I hope to, wherever we are with Jesus, to awaken a thirst for something different, something new, more of Jesus. And the resurrection shows us that becoming truly human is something that God can do and will do if we create space and allow him to do it, surrender to that work. So the context of uh, all this talk of circumcision, if you've been, this is like week 15 or 16 of our Galatians series, I feel like we've been talking about circumcision so much that I don't even notice it anymore, but it is a little weird. I just want to acknowledge that. But Paul is writing to uh, some people uh, in churches in the region of Galatia. He had planted churches there a while ago and moved on. And he, uh, some false teachers came, which is why he's writing this letter, to address some teaching that was contrary to the gospel that he gave the churches. And they, these false teachers, they were saying, yes, yeah, sure, do what you will with Jesus. Yeah, maybe you need Jesus, but you also need to keep the Jewish laws, like circumcision, in order to be made right with God. And like I said, for 12 weeks, 14 weeks, I've lost track. We've unpacked why this is not a right. Anytime we add anything to Jesus, we're going to miss out on the goodness of Jesus, the goodness that he makes available to us in the gospel. And today, I was so fascinated by this because we see Paul getting into the psychology going on in the false teachers. And what needs are motivating the false teachers uh, to, to the point where they're trying to swoop into Galatia and convince all these church people that they need to be circumcised. These would be non-Jewish people that were kind of saved out of like pagan temple worship and idolatry. And they're saying like, that's good, you stopped doing that. Now you need to add Torah observance, uh, like circumcision amongst, you know, the 613 other ones or whatever. And these needs that Paul points out in the false teachers are very profound because I think they are the, the needs, the, the motives that drive, I think, pretty much all of human behavior at risk of overstating it. And it's important because if we're trying to consider what it means to be truly human according to God, to if we can just clearly say God invented humanity, like he's the one that knows how it works, then I think we should pay attention to what it shows us and what he shows us in Scripture. And you can trace these three core needs of being a human all through Scripture, starting in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, if through all, they're all over the Psalms. The prophets speak to them. And then Jesus deals with them. And the, letter, letter, the whole thing, I, I'm, I'm belaboring the point. <laughs> the whole Bible talks about these things. in uh, their needs that God has created us to have. Needs that existed before sin, before the fall, and needs that only God can meet. And that's important to note because that means that the needs themselves aren't bad. The issue, rather, is where we are going to get the needs met. This is the whole deal with the original sin, with the Adam and Eve in the garden eating the fruit. There was a a terrible lie that entered. Like, is God good? Can I trust him? Does he love me? Will he meet my needs? And they doubted that, and so they reached out to meet their needs apart from God. Took the fruit to meet their needs. This is one of the most helpful helpful ways to understand sin. Meeting good, God-given needs apart from God 
rejecting God in pride, believing that we can come up with a better way to be human. Everything goes wrong when we do that. So the first need that we see in Paul's diagnosis of these false teachers uh, is in verse, the first part of verse 12. It says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. A good showing in the flesh. This is showing us the, the foundational human need for approval. It's, it's the need that we all have behind the question, what do you think of me? There's some vibe in our culture that we just want to live our truth and do our thing and, and all that stuff. They would not care about what people think about us, but that's just not true to what it means to be human. Like, they, obviously, there's examples of people who have so, like, squashed the sense of, like, caring about other people that they don't care, but that tends to make a sociopath. We need approval from outside of ourselves. But, of course, if we are overly focused on getting approval from other people, what does that do to us? It makes us, you know, spineless, people-pleasing kinds of folks where we'll do anything or say anything to get approval or we'll lie, embellish, withhold the truth. Bend the truth, overcommit because we can't say no, or neglect our spouse and kids in order to you know, get other people at work's approval or whatever. The false teachers were trying to get the Galatian church to be circumcised, to buy into this Torah observance because it would make them look good. They would be approved from what seems to be like the Jewish leaders that sent them there, like on a mission to convert these like former pagans, now Christians, into Torah observance. We need, desperately need approval from others. When we desperately need approval from others, we become less than truly human. And we dehumanize other people because they become tools, things we use in order to get approval. Love is obliterated when the approval of others becomes our pursuit. What do, what do you do to get approval from others? Is your life crazy because you can't say no? Or we, you know, we can't not respond to that like 10 p.m. email from our boss, or we can't not, you know, thank every like and comment on our post because we we need it to keep coming. You find yourself compulsively talking about yourself, the the humble brag, right? You can't not like name drop or, or accomplish drop in conversations. And the question is, are those strategies working? Like, does it satisfy? Is it enough? The second need is in the rest of verse 12. Let me read the whole thing. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These false teachers are motivated by avoiding persecution. So they're twisting the message of the gospel in order to be secure and comfortable. That's the second core need. And it's kind of like, it's got two sides of it. Security and comfort. And it's the need behind the question that we implicitly ask, am I safe? And provided for. To be human means that we're vulnerable, means that we need external inputs. Like at no point, like even pre-sin before brokenness, were we ever meant to be self-sustaining like automatons. We were meant dependent, we were designed and created to glorify God in our weakness, in our dependency on him. The false teachers were trying to avoid threats to their safety and comfort by changing their message. It was offensive to Jewish people to say that the way to true life, the way to be brought to God, to be truly human was the cross, the most painful, uncomfortable way to die possible. And so they, they fudged and, wouldn't, and avoided drama or physical attacks. 
What do we do to maintain a sense of comfort and security? You know, instead of real comfort, we might dehumanize ourselves by just going to numbing things. We numb ourselves through work or food or porn or Netflix binges or... Instead of real security, we dehumanize ourselves to, to just be about money or the next job or the next promotion. Now, of course, is, is food or money or sex or work bad? Definitely not. But I hope you can see how these good things can get twisted. We can reach out to them, reach out to these good things instead of reaching out to God. I mean, the, the false teachers of Paul, that Paul is addressing, they had verses. <laughs> they were using the God-given law to, to try to break down the gospel. They weren't making it up. They were using God's words, but they they were twisting it, coming from empty, ravenous hearts. We've seen approval. We've seen comfort, security. In verse 13, we see the third core need. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Why were the false teachers wanting to get the Galatians circumcised? So they could boast and feel important about having people listen to them and do what they say. This is the core need of significance. It's the need behind the questions like, do I matter? And how am I doing? Like, how do I, do I have a role to play? A desire for significance is good. God made us with work to do before sin. He's empowered humans, given us agency to to have things to do, have a role to play in his creation. The desire to feel power or agency and to contribute to shalom, to the the flourishing of everything, is from God, and it's wired into you. In fact, I, I think most of the depression that we see in our culture comes from the fact that so many of us, young people in particular, just have those those helplessness blues. Any fleet fox fancies? Fan fleet fox I can't get it. It's a that's a tongue twister. I should have. Should have edited that from the manuscript. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, we, we just want a work to play, to, to play a role in a bigger picture. We don't know what to do. Everything, every institution, everything feels like it's breaking down. We don't know how to engage meaningfully. Paul said in another letter to another church that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. If we don't have a clear sense of that in our daily lives, we're not living the truly human life that God wants for us. The false teachers had taken this God-given need and based their their sense, their own feeling of significance on the numbers of followers that they can get and getting their followers to do what they say. And I'm so glad we as a human race have moved past the desire for followers. (laughs) False. But what dehumanizing ways that we seek, what are the dehumanizing ways that we seek to get our need for significance met? Could be our kids, trying to get our kids to behave or excel at school or violent or sports or whatever so we can feel like our, our parenting work is, actually matters. This one, speaking for a friend, do we feel like we have to solve everyone's problems instantly because it'll make us feel good and powerful and capable when maybe they just needed someone to mourn with them and give them a hug? Do we prioritize work over relationships? You know, there are gold stars to win at work. A very depending on your job, of course, like you can win at work, but like doing the dish, unloading the dishwasher and picking up magnet tiles, like doesn't get you any gold stars. It's just like part of being at home, being in these slow relationships. Or I remember when I was in college, uh, I, I actually said at one point, "Just be glad you didn't know me in college." 
oh, it'd be so much easier to get good grades if I didn't have friends. Like, I actually said that. It's a whole other sermon and story. But, like, you know, we, we can get, like, you want gold stars, and friends don't give, might not give you the gold stars. So there you have it. Three universal core needs of being truly human. Approval, security and comfort, and significance. We all need them. Uh, we need all three of them, but I, but I found typically, uh, just chew on this, we tend to have one. That's our main driver. Uh, and then the other ones are kind of uh, underneath that one. But most of the dysfunctions and relational breakdown in our lives come from trying to meet these needs on our own. And love is obliterated in this case because people become little need-meeting resources instead of image bearers of God. But that leaves us with the question, how do we get these needs in a way, needs met in a way that makes us truly human, that doesn't dehumanize us or other people around us? Well, that's what Paul says in verse 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says two very powerful things in this one verse. First, in the cross of Christ, all our core human needs are met. That is our boast. That is our hope. That is our treasure. That is, like what, we, that is what we hold on to instead of using the other things, the other people for it. And second, in the cross of Jesus, the ways that the world would suggest meeting our needs are dead to us. And we're dead to the world. So let's walk through the needs. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that the love of God meets our deepest desire for approval. What do you think of me? The cross is God saying, I love you, literally to death. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, it meets our deepest desire for security. Am I safe and provided for? Yes, because our standing before God, our connection to God is not based on what we do. We don't have to keep it up. It's secure in the work of Jesus on the cross that makes us then his children, sons and daughters of the king, where we have all the, all the resources of the king of the universe, of, of God available to us. We are provided for in that, in our identity as sons and daughters. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ meets our deepest desire for significance because we mattered enough. We are important enough that God would die for us. He would ransom us, redeem us, buy us back with a price, the most valuable thing in existence, the life of his only begotten son. We can, like Paul, boast in the cross of Christ because we see all our approval, security, and comfort and significance find their deepest yes, find their fulfillment in the fact of what he's done in Jesus. The more this becomes a reality, the less the world's offerings appeal to us. The approval of Instagram followers, the numbing comforts of porn or romance novels, the fleeting significance of, of work or you know, little Billy's batting average or whatever, it's like when you get a taste of fresh, pure water. There's just no temptation to drink salt water. Here's an example from my own life. Still very much in progress, but, but there's some, some fruit. So Paul says in another letter that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Like this is who God has revealed himself to be for you and me. Someone who comforts us. That's a fact, who God is. God is the true comfort, the true source of security, the Psalms would say, refuge, strong tower, fortress, especially in times of suffering. 
But my habit for a lot of my life was meeting that comfort, security need through food and movies, specifically pizza and movies. When I'm experiencing pain or stress or struggle, I want to eat pizza and watch movies. Is it a sin to eat pizza and watch movies? Of course not. But in my sin, I could take these things that are fine and reach out to them for the thing that God has said he can and will be for me. If pizza and movie be my comfort and refuge instead of the God of the universe, what a terrible trade. And, and the thing that I've experienced at some point in this journey of like having a soul a little bit deeper that began all those years ago, uh, God has worked through mostly through uh, giving him space with fasting and simplicity in what I eat to where I've be, begun to experience the comfort and security that comes from showing up to God in affliction, showing up to God in the pain and stress, feeling him walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death instead of just trying to like hit the eject button of the shadow of the valley of death. I feel like I'm at the tip of the iceberg with this, uh, but I can just testify is the comfort of God is so much better than just ejecting or escaping out of life with an eight-corner pizza from Jets and Jason Statham Marathon. You know, it's, I go slumming when I'm looking for comfort. <laughs> the food and movie escape it, it, is, is what the world offers, right? Like, the, we live in a time where we have, the, we have access to numbing comforts more than most kings did throughout human history. But as I've tasted the, the real comfort of God, it becomes dead to me. And now I can be free to enjoy pizza and movie to the glory of God, uh, receiving it as an occasional little feast to delight in God's goodness. Does that make sense to you? Are you all just like ordering jets right now? Is, is ham canceled? Are we always going to get an eight-corner now? That brings us to verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul's saying it just doesn't matter about those outward things, like circumcision or not being circumcised. The only thing that matters is living into the realities that we are a new creation, united with Christ, experiencing the the fellowship, the love, the intimacy of the Trinity as members of Christ. The point isn't, do I eat pizza and watch movies or not eat pizza and watch movies? No, the, the point is, am I experiencing the fact that I have been transformed into a new creation? In a minute... We're going to celebrate a couple baptisms up here. And it's profound to me the words that God the Father speaks over Jesus in his baptism. Look what it says in Matthew 3, 16 through 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism and receive this, receives this blessing from the Father that it, if you think about it, speaks exactly to these three core needs. Security asks, am I safe and provided for? In Jesus, we have the Father saying, you are my son. You are my daughter. Approval asks, what do you think about me? In Jesus, we have the Father saying, I love you. And significance asks, do I matter? How am I doing? In Jesus, we can hear the Father saying, I am pleased with you. This was before Jesus had done any ministry. God's word over his life is, I am pleased with you. You are mine. This is what it means to be in Christ, to be truly human, is that these truths, the God of the universe, says over us, become our reality. 
because of the resurrection. It's Christ who lives in me. And for those of us who are in Jesus, the word of God over your life is you were mine. I love you, and I'm pleased with you. This is where our core needs are met. In the resurrection, we're transformed into a new creation. The straining and striving to get our lives together apart from God begins to cease. The flimsy pleasures and satisfaction of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We are invited to set up our lives, our habits, our, to, to live under this blessing of God our Father to us in Christ. So what next? What do we do in light of this good news that we are a new creation, becoming truly human like Jesus? Well, for those of us here who feel far away from God uh, or aren't sure where you stand with Jesus, the invitation stands to you. Come to Jesus and become a beloved child of God. Turn from all the unsatisfactory ways that you have tried to get security, approval, and significance apart from him. This is hard, but own the people that you've hurt in your efforts to get your security, approval, and significance by yourself. I'd love to talk to you about that. Come talk to me afterwards, how you can join God's family. And for those of us who are in church, you might feel stuck or discouraged, or maybe everything's fine, but it feels like something's missing. You're thirsty for more. I'll just share this. I'll just testify to this. After having that little epiphany at that first staff meeting 10 years ago, uh, that church happened to require me uh, for a one work day a month to do silence and solitude. Like not a study day, not a reading day, not a planning day, like to be silent with God for eight hours. And it didn't even like compute when they first told me about it. I don't even understand what you're saying. Like is that an option? To, to begin to stop my straining and striving and get alone with God, to let my needs and desires come to the surface and, and hold them before him. Like, no, no judgment, no, no, no shame. That's all been taken care of in the cross. So we can just hold the, these compulsions, these needs before God and ask him what he wants to show us. And for me, that space, alone with God in the quiet, has been a powerhouse of transformation. And so I'd encourage you to, to pick a time this week where you can get alone, maybe 20, 30 minutes, maybe with a journal, and just write down these three needs, security, approval, significance, and ask God, which, which one am I most driven by? Ask him, as the psalmist says, to search you and know you, to point out any offensive way where you've tried to get those needs met apart from him. Maybe consider the last few fights you had with your spouse the thing that you're most anxious about, the coworker that you like the least, and say, what, what core need am I trying to get in that space? And give God space to be for you what he is in Christ, what he is objectively in, what is in Christ. Let him make you truly human through his incredible love that transforms us, that we have in our resurrected Savior. Let me pray. Oh, Father, what can we say to such incredible love? What can we say to such overwhelming hope that would conquer the grave? What can we say to the kindness that you would make us human, make us your creatures, and then give us yourself to satisfy the deepest longing of our souls? Truly, you are good, Father, and we see that in the resurrected King and Savior.
Father, would you meet us now in this space as we celebrate this new life? I pray uh, against any condemnation. Instead, I pray for the Holy Spirit to just bring us into a sweet invitation to just be washed in waves of your love that are evident and clear in effect because of what you've done for us in Jesus. Amen.